Our scripture passage this morning is Genesis chapter 36, Pew Bible, page 57, Genesis chapter 36, continuing our sermon series in the book of Genesis. I say that because some people might be wondering, this is a very strange passage to pick for a Mother's Day sermon. But it's uh, actually connected to Mother's Day a lot more than you might think. Here now the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Genesis chapter 36. This is the account of Esau, that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Adah, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Oholabamah, daughter of Anna, and granddaughter of Zibion, the Hivite, also Basimah, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Naboyeth. Adah bore Eliphaz to Esau, Basimah bore Ruel, and Olabamah bore Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the sons of Esau who were born to him in Canaan. Esau took his wives and sons and daughters and all the members of his household, as well as his livestock and all his other animals and all the goods he had acquired in Canaan, and moved to a land some distance from his brother Jacob. Their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them both because of their livestock. So Esau, that is Edom, settled in the hill country of Seir. This is the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites, in the hill country of Seir. These are the names of Esau's sons, Eliphaz, the son of Esau's wife, Adah, and Ruel, the son of Esau's wife, Basimoth. The sons of Eliphaz, Temen, Omar, Zepho, Gadam, and Kenaz. Esau's son, Eliphaz, also had a concubine named Timnah, who bore him Amalek. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Adah. The sons of Ruel, Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were grandsons of Esau's wife, Basimoth. The sons of Esau's wife, Oholabama, daughter of Anah, and granddaughter of Zibion, whom she bore to Esau, Jeush, Jalam, and Korah. These were the chiefs among Esau's descendants. The sons of Eliphaz, the firstborn of Esau. Chiefs Temen, Omar, Zepho, Kenaz, Korah, Gadam, and Amalek. These were the chiefs descended from Eliphaz and Edom. They were grandsons of Adah. The sons of Esau's son, Ruel, chiefs Nahath, Zerah, Shammah, and Mizah. These were the chiefs descended from Ruel and Edom. They were grandsons of Esau's wife, Basimah. The sons of Esau's wife, Oholabamah. Chiefs, Jeush, Jalem, and Korah. These were the chiefs descended from Esau's wife, Oholabamah, daughter of Anah. These were the sons of Esau, that is, Edom. And these were their chiefs. These were the sons of Seir, the Horite, who were living in the region. Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anah, Deshan, Ezer, and Deshan. These sons of Seir and Edom were Horite chiefs, the sons of Lotan, Horai, and Hamam. Timnah was Lotan's sister. The sons of Shubal, Alvin, Manahath, Ebal, Shepho, and Onam. The sons of Zibion, Aiah, and Anah. This is the Anah who discovered the hot springs in the desert while he was grazing the donkeys of his father Zibion. The children of Anah, Deshan, and Aholabama, daughter of Anah. The sons of Deshon, Hemden, Eshban, Ithron, and Kiran. The sons of Ezer, Bilhan, Zavan, and Achan. The sons of Deshan, Uz, and Aran. And these were the Horite chiefs, 
Lotan, Shabal, Zibion, Anah, Dishon, Ezer, and Dishon. These are the Horite chiefs according to their divisions in the land of Seir. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Bela, son of Beor, became king of Edom. His city was named Dinhabah. When Bela died, Jobab, son of Zerah from Buzrah, succeeded him as king. When Jobab died, Husham from the land of the Temanites succeeded him as king. When Husham died, Hadad, son of Bedad, who defeated Midian in the country of Moab, succeeded him as king. His city was named Avith. When Hadad died, Samla from Masrakah succeeded him as king. When Samla died, Shaul from Rehoboth on the river succeeded him as king. When Shaul died, Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, succeeded him as king. When Baal Hanan, son of Akbor, died, Hadad succeeded him as king. His city was named Pa, and his wife's name was Mehatabal, daughter of Matred, the daughter of Mehzahab. These were the chiefs descended from Esau by name, according to their clans and regions, Timnah, Avah, Jeteth, Jetheth, Aholabama, Elah, Pinon, Kenaz, Teman, Mibzar, Magdiel, and Iram. These were the chiefs of Edom according to their settlements and the land they occupied. This was Esau, the father of the Edomites. Sorry, something I said sounded like Siri, apparently. And my phone just went off. Maybe that's why I had that setting turned off. All right. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. I promise you, this is going to be the most interesting Mother's Day sermon you have ever heard. Because that sounded like a phone book, didn't it? I sounded like I was filibustering Congress. But what I want you to get from this sermon is what Paul tells us about the Word of God in the New Testament. And that the Word of God is breathed out by God and it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for rebuke. To make the people of God complete, whole, mature. And does he say some of the scripture is is that? No, he says all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. So all scripture includes Genesis 36, Esau's descendants. And what on the surface might seem like a very boring and non-particular text, I hope, by the end of it, we will see in it that really... One of the main things that Moses is recording for us here, besides a history, a historical account for his people, the people of Israel, is God's intentions to redeem the world and the people that he created. You see, in this passage, one of the things being communicated to us is that God hasn't given up on the world. God hasn't given up on the world and the people in the world. And you might be tempted to think that here in the book of Genesis when we begin to see the particularizing of the focus upon the people of Israel, of the focus upon one particular family, Abraham's family and his descendants, we might begin to think that all that's out on the periphery, all the people that live in this world, all the people that spread out from the Tower of Babel, that they've all been forgotten by God and that God is not considering them anymore. And hey... You know what? Sometimes maybe we, as Christians, as the people of God, as the church, we like to get together in our little holy huddle and hang out in our Christian ghettos 
And forget about the world that's out there. And and forget about God's redemptive plan for the world and the people in the world. That's all on the periphery. We're we're good in here. We're safe in here. We're not really thinking about God's redemptive plan for, for everything else. And Genesis 36 screams, God hasn't forgotten about the world. He's not given up on the world. So neither should we. So let's look at this. The first point is Esau in the land. The first eight verses of Genesis 36 tells us, in summary, about Esau's time in the land. And what you need to understand is that this chapter, chapter 36, covers approximately a time period of 400 years, right? So this is a very compacted chapter of a long, spending a long period of time. So Genesis 36, the first eight verses is Esau's uh, upbringing, Esau's entire time that he's in the land of Canaan, while Jacob, his brother, is off in Badan Aram, marrying Rachel and Leah and having children. Esau's doing all these things. And we heard about this some earlier because we were told that uh, Isaac and his wife, uh, Rebecca, were not happy that Esau took wives from the land. So in verse 30, uh, verse 30, chapter 36, verse 1 and 2, we read, This is the account of Esau that is Edom. Esau took his wives from the women of Canaan, Adah, daughter of Elon the Hittite, and Olabama, daughter of Anah, and granddaughter of Zibion the Hivite. And Esau realized that his parents were not happy with him marrying the Canaanite people because they, they become troublesome to him. And the reason for this is because Isaac was uh, a worshiper of Yahweh, the covenant God, and the Canaanites worshiped other gods, and Esau was being carried away or being tempted or being taken away by these other gods to worship these other gods. That's why um, they did not want them intermarrying. And so what Esau tries to do is he attempts to uh, ease his parents' frustration with him, maybe get on his parents' good side, and what he does is he marries a daughter of Ishmael a descendant of Abraham. Also Basimeth, daughter of Ishmael, and sister of Neboeth. So Esau's like, well, I married the daughter of Ishmael. She's a relative, right? Doesn't that not make you happy? But what Esau doesn't realize, and what we've been communicated about Esau is that he's a very carnal person. He's not spiritually minded. He's not considering the promises of God. Esau gave his birthright away for a cup of red soup. Esau's um, double portion was stolen by Jacob's conniving. Nonetheless, we were told at the beginning of their lives that there were two nations in their mother's womb. And that one would serve the other. The older would serve the younger. And so Esau doesn't consider the promises of God, and he doesn't remember that Isaac was the one who was given the promise, not Ishmael. He's a very carnal person. And this carnality continues as we see the description of Esau taking his wives, the Esau... um, um, Finally, at the end of uh, verse 8, Esau left the promised land and settled in the hill country of Seir. In fact, if you read this portion, 
Esau took his wives, sons and daughters, all the members of his household, as well as his livestock, all his other animals, all the goods he had acquired in Canaan. And he moved to a land some distance from his brother because their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them. It should invoke for us a correlation to the separation of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13. And if we remember that separation of Abraham and Lot in Genesis 13... Abraham said, I'm going, uh, Abraham told Lot, pick whatever piece of land you want. And Lot, he looked to the east, down at Sodom and Gomorrah in that valley, and he said, oh, that looks nice, that looks prosperous, I'm going to go there. And so what Lot does is a theme throughout the book of Genesis, when they were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they went east. And the more east you go, the further you go away from the presence of God. And so Lot, he moved away from the presence of God. He moved away from the promised land. And you see what that brought him, the turmoil that that brought him, the hardship that that brought him. And so we see here, uh, Moses is invoking that. He wants us to see that not only is it a fulfillment of God's word that Esau would eventually leave the promised land because Jacob is going to be the one who inherits it, but this departure of Esau to the land of Seir is meant to be something that invokes for us a leaving of the presence of God, a leaving of the promise of God, a furthering of his carnal, fleshly uh, character, Esau's carnal, fleshly character. He's pushing off to the east. And just as Lot's descendants became the Moabites and the Ammonites, who would later have conflicts with the nation of Israel as they're entering into the promised land, We'll find, too, that there will be tension between the Edomites and the Israelites as they enter into the promised land. So Esau is in the land, but by the end of this account, he's left the land. He's left the promised land. So verses 1 through 8 tell us about Esau's time in the promised land. And we have to keep in mind, too, here that Esau is still being blessed by God through all this. And so Esau goes east, verse 9 uh, through 30, tells us about the account of Esau, the father of the Edomites, and the hill country of Seir. The Toledot, these two phrases, uh, the verse, Genesis 36, verse 1, this is the account of Esau. The book of Genesis is broken down into all these books, these Toledotes, these counts. Um, in Genesis 36, there's two uh, mentions of this. And so the first one is about the person of Esau and his immediate family. But now it's transitioning to the, uh, the nation of Edom, living east of Eden in the hill country of Seir. So verses 9 through 20 transitions from the family of Esau to the chiefs of the tribes of Esau. And so God says, I'm going to make two nations out of the, the babies that are in your womb. And God does this. He does what he promised. And so, verses 9 through 20 tell us about how Esau's small family becomes uh, a group of chiefs, tribes. And later we're going to see even how Esau's family then progresses from chiefs, tribes to a nation. So, verse 9 through 20 transitions from chiefs to tribes. But if you look in verse 20... There's a transition that happens in this section. It states here that these were the sons of Seir the Horite, 
who were living in the region. What region is that? It's the region of Seir that Esau left the promised land to go to. And what we discover is that Esau intermarried with the people of Seir. And then eventually took over their land. Became the leaders of that land. So the land was no longer uh, the land of Seir. It was the land of Edom. And so initially it was through um, um, intermarriage and making treaties like that. Um, but eventually it was a full takeover. Esau had a full takeover of, um, of these people. They were displaced by him. So verses 20 through 30 describes the sons of Seir the Horite, whom Esau's family intermarried with, and eventually displaced. And you can see this intermarrying when you look at uh, the, um, the names given here and the connection they have uh, earlier in the chapter with Esau's family. And if there's uh, something you might want to know about this chapter that's interesting, is some of the connections that it has with the people of Israel later in their history. And one of those connections is described for us in the sticky pages of the Bible, Obadiah. Obadiah is one of the hardest chapters, books, in the Old Testament to find. And if you want to know where it is, it's on page 1,433 in your pew Bibles. Obadiah is a tiny little prophecy given completely about Edom. You see, once Esau left the land, once they became um, a a different people than Israel, and once they uh, entered into um, a difficult, tense kind of relationship uh, with Esau, there was actually a judgment against them uh, for the ways that they treated Israel later on in their history. And uh, Obadiah describes that for us. The sins of Edom in Obadiah are pride and unbrotherliness. And so Edom became a prominent nation, a nation who had fortified cities. They hid back into valleys inside of mountains and caves. And they believed that nobody could defeat them. Nobody could overcome them. Nobody could attack them. And then also, in correlation with that, Esau, Edom, forgot their connection to the people of God. And as the people of God were coming back into the promised land, they actually reached out to Edom and said, can we pass through your land? We will make sure to provide, uh, pay for all the water that we use and the land that we use. Can we just simply pass through? We're not going to attack you. We're not going to hurt you. And Edom refused. And not only that, but later on in their history, there was a time in which Israel was attacked, Jerusalem was attacked, and, and Edom did not come to the aid. Edom laughed and mocked at uh, the attack that was happening. And actually, as the stranglers were trying to escape, Edom took advantage of that situation, attacked them, and uh, plundered them. And so the growth of the sin of unbrotherliness is actually documented for us in Obadiah. If you look at verses 11 through 14, it describes 
this situation. Verse 11 says, On the day that is Edom, you stood aloof, while strangers carried off his, that is Israel's, wealth. And foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You were like one of them. You should not look down on your brother in the day of his misfortune, nor rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their destruction, nor boast so much in the day of their trouble. You should not march through the gates of my people in the day of their disaster, nor look down on them in their calamity in the day of their disaster, nor seize their wealth in the day of their disaster. You should not wait at the crossroads to cut down their fugitives, nor hand over their survivors in the day of their trouble. Well, what is Obadiah saying? Well, the prophet is saying that the Lord is accusing Edom of being unbrotherly to Esau or to Israel, forgetting their connection to their common father. They stood aloof. They gloated over and looked down on them. They rejoiced in their downfall. They boasted, and they even participated in the downfall of Israel. This is what happens when you continue your journey east of Eden, away from the presence of God and away from your connection to the people of God. In fact, one can trace this reality simply by looking at the names in Genesis chapter 36. In Genesis chapter 36, we see that when Esau was in the land of Canaan, he names a couple of his children after the name of God. Ruel and Jeush. But as you read further on, as he continues to have more children and as his descendants move further away from the presence of God and their connection to the covenant people, we even end with somebody being named after the Canaanite god, Baal Hanan. You see, you can't simply be neutral in this life. Either you're for the Lord or you're drifting. Either you're standing on God, His word, and His promises, or you're going east of Eden. You're not standing still. You're moving. And we see the drift in Esau and in his descendants. But Carrie, I thought you said that this chapter, Genesis 36, told us that God has not given up on this world. Well, in verses 31 through 39, we see the transition from Esau's particular family, to the tribes or the chieftains, to eventually kings and kingdoms. This is what happens in verse 31. These were the kings who reigned in Edom before any Israelite king reigned. Moses is saying before Israel was even a kingdom and had kings and a particularized nation, Esau had it. Edom had it. God had blessed the people of Esau, his descendants, because God had promised 
that, that from Abraham there would be descendants as numerous as the sea on the sand shore and the stars in the sky. To, uh, to Isaac and Rebekah, he had promised that there would be two nations that would come from these two people. God had made these promises, and God is keeping his promise to Esau, to Edom. He makes him into a great nation. He makes him into a large people. And this gives us something that we should take a moment to think about. And that is, oftentimes, we only have two categories for people in the Bible. Elect or non-elect. Either they're the chosen people of God, or they're not the chosen people of God. But I'd like to make a suggestion to you that we should have three categories The elect, the non-elect, and the anti-elect. And when we read the book of Genesis and we think of people like the Ishmaelites and the Edomites and all these people groups that spread out from Adam, from Noah to Abraham. But there's all these other nations, right? There's all these other people outside of what becomes the nation of Israel, what becomes the Jewish people, the Hebrew people, the Israelites. We have to be careful that we don't place the people like Edom in this category of anti-elect. Right now, their ultimate future is yet to be determined. For we see that God makes promises to them on the basis of their connection to Abraham. And he blesses them and he causes them to prosper. And he gives them this common grace. This is where we must remember that the original promise to Abraham was that through his seed, singular, that is Jesus Christ, all the nations, plural, of the world would be blessed. That the promise given to Abraham was not simply that his physical descendants would inherit the land, but that his spiritual descendants would inherit the world. You see, one of the prideful mistakes and the arrogant mistakes of the Pharisees and the religious leaders at the time of Jesus is they thought they were the chosen people of God and they had nothing to be worried about. They were the children of Abraham. Abraham's their father. And that's why Jesus begins to teach them parables that says, yeah, but you don't want to come into the kingdom, so I'm going to go out to the highways and the byways, and I'm going to get all the stragglers and the ragamuffins and the the abused and the used and those who are outside of this normal place, and I'm going to invite them in, and they're going to come freely and gladly. What is Jesus talking about there? Well, he's talking about the Ishmaelites and the Edomites. Or the New Testament word for them, Gentiles, non-Jewish people. Talk about them. This is where we can factor in these seemingly sidelined stories about these nations that develop in the background of the book of Genesis. Why is it 
that Moses takes an entire chapter to tell us all about the people who are descended from Esau. It's because Moses wants us to know that God keeps his word and God keeps his promises. Gentile Christians today are the fruit of these promises. We are the fruit of these promises. God's emphasis and time spent on a non-Israelite people group in Genesis 36 shows us that non-Israelite believers are not an afterthought in the plan of redemption. It tells us that God hasn't given up on this world and its people, and neither should we. But we have to be cautious. Because it is possible that non-elect people can become the anti-elect if they set themselves against God and His chosen people. So even though kings and kingdoms came from Esau, Christ came from Jacob, was enthroned as king of all kings and reigns over all earthly kingdoms. So Jew or Gentile, we must bend the knee, surrender our lives, take the way of the cross, and give ourselves wholly to Jesus, our Savior. We must not let the common and special grace we have received become a reason for greater judgment because we fail to repent of sin and live by faith in the Son of God. And we must see from this chapter in the book of Genesis that God hasn't given up on the world. Neither should we. God hasn't given up on this world and neither should we. And just so you can take this with you and say this was really actually a Mother's Day sermon. The reason why Genesis 36 is an appropriate Mother's Day passage is because all this list of descendants would not be possible without moms. Amen? So my prayer is that you would leave from this message this morning knowing that your belief in Jesus Christ is not an afterthought in God's plan of redemption. It's not a plan B. God has planned bringing in the other nations of this world from the beginning. And as these people spun off from the promised people, the, the, the chosen people, Israel, in the Old Testament, God had his eye on Edom. God had his eye on Ishmael and the people and the nations and the people that descended from them because God knew that Jesus, his son, was going to come into this world and through him, the nations would come to know salvation. And I pray that you would know, because you know that God hasn't given up on the world, even though we look outside and we say, come Lord Jesus, and so much is wrong and so much is broken, we shouldn't give up on the world either. We are the light of the world. We're the salt of the world. There's still Edomites to be saved. There's still Ishmaelites to be saved. There's still Gentiles and Jews who need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. There's still a world to be renewed and redeemed. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for all that you have done for us in Jesus Christ. You have broken down the 
barrier of hostility. You have made the two, Jew and Gentile, one people, that we might all call Abraham our father, that we might all know Jesus Christ, his descendant, the one who saved us from our sins and gave us his perfect righteousness. And that we might know through this chapter, Lord, this consideration of a people who are not Israel, who are outside the chosen people of the Old Testament, may remind us that you have not given up on this world and those made in your image, and neither should we. We ask that you would help us in this endeavor. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in Jesus' name we pray, amen.